rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome, friends. This is Bob Hutchins to another episode of Rumors of Grace. And before we begin with our guest today, I just want to remind you all, if you've been listening to the podcast now, we're going into our second year. Uh, We've had a great run, and I'm very excited about the type of guests we've had, and we've got a lot of exciting guests coming up. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I want to encourage you to please go rate and review on iTunes. What this does is it allows the show to bubble up a little bit higher based on the number of reviews um, and ratings so that more people can listen to and engage with Rumors of Grace. I also want to remind you to please go to Facebook and do a search for Rumors of Grace podcast. It's a private group where all you have to do is ask when you're there and I'll let you in. We have interesting discussions there as well. Today's show, I have a fascinating, very interesting guest, a new friend. His name is Matthew J. Cortman. And uh, Matthew is, first of all, a biblical scholar and theologian. He's an itinerant preacher, and he calls himself a theological arsonist. And the reason that I'm very interested in talking to Matthew and learning about his story is he reached out to me on Facebook, uh, asked me to be a friend. I, of course, said gladly and started doing a little bit of research like I sometimes do. And uh, he's got a new book out called Saying No to God. And I believe uh, it, if it's not out, it'll be out very soon. You can see it on Amazon. It's called Saying No to God. And the reason that I'm even talking to Matthew is I just read his book he sent me after the fact, and it's fascinating, but his bio alone hooked me. So let me tell you a little bit about Matthew before I introduce him. Matthew is a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he's someone who's worked both as a student pastor and chaplain within it. He strived to work in ecumenical capacities with other churches as well, including the Episcopal Church, where he has served as a homilist for various parishes. Aside from practical skills within church life, he's also experienced with teaching, having worked for four years straight as a teaching assistant for several faculties at La Sierra University, Richard's Divinity School. He's received many opportunities to teach there, multiple classes and theological topics, Okay, listen to this. He's currently pursuing his Master's of Arts uh, in Second Temple Judaism at Yale Divinity School in Connecticut, where he studies with renowned biblical scholars John J. Collins, Harold Attridge, uh, Gregory Mobley, along with many others. Um, but that's not all. He has he holds three bachelor's degrees in theology, archaeology, and philosophy, and a Bachelor of Fine Arts in screenwriting. So he's got four bachelor's degrees, all from La Sierra University. He graduated after five years with a 3.98 GPA and completed an undergraduate thesis of 50,000 words, examining the roles of the Apocrypha within early Seventh-day Adventism and Protestantism. Um, 
He was born in Texas. He's studying in Connecticut. He's proud to call California his home. And he's traveled extensively around the, around the world, ranging from Peru to Japan. He spent time in the Middle East where he studied Hebrew and Israel and participated in archaeological dig in Jordan as part of uh, a project there. So, Matthew, welcome to Rumors of Grace. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a real pleasure to join you. Matthew, your bio reads like someone who is lived a long, full life, but you're a very young man, right? I am 28 years old. Wow. So if you consider that young, yeah. <laughs> I, given my age, I consider that young. I have a son that's 27, so yes, that's right. young. And I, but then to make this real... I have a friend who died um, exceedingly young before mm. he finished college. Mm. So in retrospect to him, I'm quite old. So <laughs> that's the thing about youth and life. Well, it's you have a degree in relevant. you have a degree in philosophy, so don't suck me into this hole, okay? <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> so so Matthew, uh, first of all, I want to before we jump into the the topic of your book and the subject of some of the things that I want to talk about. Your bio is fascinating to me because um, you're you're still a member of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, correct? Yeah. Okay. And yet, um, you know, you <laughs> you've served in the Episcopal Church. Um, you've got a fascinating background. So let's start from the beginning. Who who is Matthew Cortman as far as where were you born? How did you grow up? What was your family life like? Can you can you start there? Sure. Um, I was born in uh, Texas, um, but I didn't live there for too long before I ended up uh, shipping off to Florida. And then I wasn't too long in Florida, I mean, a little bit more than Texas before eventually I made my way over to San Diego, California. Mm. Um, And then for most of my life, I've lived in Southern California and San Diego County or San Diego proper um, for pretty much from the age of seven or eight onwards. So um, I consider myself a Californian. I enjoy the privilege of uh, stating that I was born in Texas. Um, I always like to joke that I can make a terrible Texas accent, but then defend it as as Texan because I was born there. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, other than than that, uh, my experience growing up was um, a good one and unique. So I was born into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, my mother was Seventh-day Adventist. My father was Seventh-day Adventist. So I came into this tradition uh, from the beginning, uh, religiously. Both of uh, my family was very religious. They were very dedicated. Um, we definitely were on the conservative end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and at various times, as is the case in conservative communities, certain individuals who are more on the edge of the extremes end up uh, getting unintended invitations from churches uh, that they shouldn't be allowed to get in order to spread their ideas. So at various times, because of itinerant preachers um, that were a little too extreme, I also had the experience of seeing very strong fundamentalist currencies uh, in my um, teenage years come in and out through my family, through various books and uh, other materials. 
so my experience growing up is kind of unique then in comparison to um, most people who come from an evangelical background, because for me, um, growing up, Seventh-day Adventism isn't technically evangelicalism. It's often grouped with evangelicalism, but there are some very strong differences between them. One of the biggest is that uh, Seventh-day Adventism does not believe in inerrancy. Um, that is not a doctrine for Adventists. And yet, um, you know, for most evangelicals, inerrancy is like the bedrock, this idea that there could not possibly, that the very words in the Bible are definitely spoken and directly taken from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Adventism, it's supposed to be more of a broad concept of thinking that derives from God, which the authors put in their own words, but because of that, there's a certain element of humanity that's in there that um, even though Adventists don't explore it much, it's still enough humanity there to avoid the implication of saying that it's without error at all. Mm. However, in uh, the uh, 21st, I mean, the 20th century, uh, with the rise of fundamentalism and all that good stuff, uh, Seventh-day Adventists have come to be very close uh, with evangelical communities, primarily sure. because um, they found themselves at a crossroads in the early part of you know the 1900s. They were unsure as to whether or not they should be going with the right, uh, but they knew that they couldn't be going with the left because at that time the left was essentially the Bible is purely human. There is no real divine element in it. It's it's. It's more, more human than anything. So they didn't believe that, so they couldn't go that way, uh, even though many of the currents in sort of a liberal Christianity back then were probably more in line with Seventh-day Adventism. On the other hand, the rising uh, conservative movement and fundamentalist strain had so many issues that went at odds with Seventh-day Adventism, but they still were holding the Bible up as authoritative. So by that happenstance of a crossroads, Adventism ended up taking a right turn in order to kind of associate itself more with those elements. Mm -hmm. And as such, many Adventists actually tend to have um, predispositions towards inerrancy. So even though technically the church does not teach this, the term is not used. Growing up with certain conservative televangelists who were Adventists that I would watch, they would sort of presume a sort of inerrancy to mm -hmm. a certain degree. So even though I was not evangelical and even though I did not have the same exact experiences that many evangelicals have, I still ended up growing up without ever hearing the term, getting the concept. Mm. So growing up, I was already kind of working with the premise that, well, you know, if this is a real prophecy that God gave, well, then God must have literally given it. And then that must mean that it's without error because we can trust the whole nine yards. Yeah. So, so my so experience, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yeah. um, before we go down the Seventh-day Adventist track, I definitely want to talk about that with you. Let's jump back to your upbringing. Do you have siblings? What was growing up like? And how did you go from, you know, happy family in California to, hey, I'm going to travel the world and, and get four, four bachelor's degrees and become this theologian? Well, yeah, no, I mean, and in a sense, you know, as is the case with uh, conservative communities, your religious uh, identification, if it's something that starts at birth, it's usually not 
really easy to separate from your identity and what it leads you to. So that the two, your question and what I'm saying are actually pretty interlinked in a certain sense, because uh, for me, growing up in that kind of a religious atmosphere and community, um, and the fact that I had no siblings, I was an mm. only child. Okay. So that meant that I had a lot more time directly with my family. I had a lot more time to have focus given directly on me by my family. And it also meant I had a lot more free time to a certain degree in order to express ideas and question things. So combining that with a sort of religious worldview in which everything kind of was spelled out. And I was essentially raised with the idea that the truth, we had the truth. Um, things were kind of on a linear path, you know, predetermined for future prophecy. Things are going to happen. That's just the way life is. Given that kind of perspective and worldview, as I was growing up in my family, um, I kind of began to uh, both take a very deep interest. I always had a deep interest in um, religion, primarily because when my mother was raising me, she did something that is kind of unique. I've heard some people experience this too, but it, it does seem to be a little unique for most people who end up going through a deconstructive process. <clears throat> and that is that my mom did not associate doctrines with a relationship with Jesus. Mm. So growing up, my mom, who was obviously conservative, and I'm not even sure she intentionally was doing this as a as sort of a desired way of teaching me, but she would, on the one hand, be teaching me in a very broad spiritual way about what it is to have a direct relationship with Jesus in your heart. Mm. And on the other hand, obviously constantly exposing me to televangelists whose approach was quite the opposite and much more directly related to this specific prophecy, this specific verse, this specific proof text. Um, and so this dichotomy was very apparent to me, I think, you know, in my subconscious. And so my relationship with Jesus as developing as a child was kind of cut off um, in the sense that the doctrine was not tied to it. If the doctrine was to eventually fall, my brain was not associating that as like the basis for why I had a relationship. So growing up, I had almost a perfect setup given to me so that I could, in essence, um, be able to recognize how it was possible to uh, seek and desire after the heart of God. And at the same time, uh, question things around me that were for other people directly linked to that issue. But for me, we're sort of a slightly connected, but not exactly integral part of the puzzle. Mm. So for me growing up, I was in a really, without realizing it, in a really good place in that I was having, at times, the strongest outright currents of fundamentalism thrown into my social circle, into my church community. I was, you know, I, I saw the gamut of conspiracy theories that could possibly come out. Yeah. And well, I know Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, were you? Did you grow up in Loma Linda in that area? No, I didn't grow up in Loma Linda. I was in San Diego. Okay. Uh, I know Seventh Day Adventists. For those who are listening, who may have some awareness or no awareness, you know, typically um, and stereotypically, they're known for a couple of things. They're known for 
you know, you observe the Sabbath. That's why they're called a Seventh-day Adventist Saturday. And then the other thing, many times that they're known as, is they're really, really focused on end times prophecies, right? Those are kind of the unique things that they kind of get put into a, to a box about, correct? Yeah, we're like dispensationalists without the dispensationalism. Right, right. <laughs> and Mary and Mary Baker Eddy too, right? No, no, she her, she always gets thrown into that uh, for some reason. I'm not even that familiar with her exactly, but I do know that like Adventists hate it when she's referenced. Got it. Okay. There's, like, there's, there's so many significant differences, but it it's more like um, the way Adventism works is that they'll never tell you there's a canon within the canon, but for many of the ultra conservative branch, there basically is a kind of canon within the canon in which for them, the books of Daniel and Revelation kind of take almost the utmost priority as they do for some evangelicals. Sure. uh, Because essentially the idea is, oh, well, these prophecies directly lead us to, you know, what is about to happen the imminent end of the world. So this is like absolutely important that we know exactly what it says so that we won't fall for this end time deception, which mm. is about to come upon. Right. So that kind of what drives the interest in Daniel and Revelation is seeing them as connected and then trying to piece together the puzzle. Um, I will say that like the way in which Adventists end up making this problematic usually is that they overemphasize these prophecies to the neglect of the gospel or the actual good news that makes you care about those prophecies. So mm. that in essence, um, the ethical center of the Christian faith can sort of become lost. And mm. then the more legal emphasis of prophecies talking about the commandments of God end up getting overemphasized. And so a certain sense of legalism can start to creep in uh, unintentionally, but it Mm -hmm. ends up kind of making it cancerous to a degree so that people become so fixated on what exactly is this end time prophecy coming that they end up actually sort of losing themselves in it. And then they become very prey to anything or any, you know, snake oil salesman, theologian who tries to come and say, oh, guess what? You know, I can show you a way in which this random group fits the prophecy and I can show you, and you know, this is not just unique to South Adventism. It's oh, yeah. an issue that happens any apocalyptic movement. Yeah. You, you, you there's cons- conservative evangelicalism specifically in the, you know, seventies, eighties and nineties was rife and still is with, you know, quote in times, um, dispensational, premillennial, you know, hucksters. Uh, and even to this day, you can still see those guys. Every time something happens in the news, there's some sort of connection with some revelation or, or Daniel connection. And I, I'm sorry, earlier I said Mary Baker Eddy. What I meant to say was Ellen G. White, correct? <laughs> yes, but that's the, that's the point. That always ends up happening. Yeah. <laughs> There's a long tradition before your comment of people mixing up those two names together. Yeah, Mary so Baker why. Eddy was was uh, started Christian Scientism, I think, and then Ellen G. White was one of the co-founders of Seventh-day Adventists, correct? Yes, okay. absolutely. And the thing is, what's so confusing about Adventism as a culture, which almost everybody who's not in Adventism doesn't get it because it's so easy to not understand it is that basically um, the very foundations of Adventism, like I was alluding to earlier 
are really middle of the road between liberalism and conservatism. Mm. They give you a foundation in which you can reject inerrancy, still uphold the authority of the Bible. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's very ambiguous in terms of how Adventists themselves have sort of adopted these currents. So you have conservatives who will uh, take like Ellen White, who was one of three people who founded the Adventist church, right. um, and who in a sense really operates as sort of like Luther operated for the early Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Um, because for the early Lutherans, Martin Luther was very much sort of an inspired individual understood that this person had been like, a, even Martin Luther himself kind of looked at himself at some point, kind of as a prophetic voice, somebody who was there for an important point. Um, and so Adventists have gone in and out and in different communities understood Ellen White's theological role in different ways, recognizing her as a prophetic voice. But then the issue is that ideas like inerrancy or what does a prophet actually mean? What's their role? How authoritative is what they said? Ongoing, blah, blah, blah. Those things change in different Adventist communities. So sure. in California, yeah, it's like just like Belinda. any 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 church, you know, any any um, yeah. denomination or sect or religion. There are many branches and interpretations, and you know what I've come to realize in the past ten years or so is that even on any given Sunday, um, in a in a normal church service in America or anywhere in the world, wherever you may be, um, sitting in the pew, uh, each person is interpreting even that experience through their own lenses and understanding. So um, it's really hard to, to, to try to hyper-categorize things uh, when it comes to personal faith and denominations. But, but, I, but I appreciate the history um, that you've given me. You, you've, you've illuminated me quite a bit because I didn't know a ton about it. I do know that Loma Linda is a blue zone from reading that book, um, which it has a high level of centenarians who live there, obviously because of, I think, the lifestyle so that's another thing about Seventh-day Adventists. Um, they have typically known to be very specific about eating healthy and staying well, correct? They have traditionally, and that's due a lot to the emphasis that um, that Ellen White gave in her theological writings. She gave a huge importance to the idea of a health message. Um, and for Loma Linda, where you probably will find in Loma Linda a lot more liberal Adventists who view Ellen White in a far more, um, strictly speaking, liberal sense, uh, a give or take kind of approach as opposed to on the East Coast where you'll find a lot more um, radical approaches in terms of a conservative way of reading her. Uh, but in Loma Linda, her health message is extremely um, well-received and emphasized, partly because of Loma Linda University and the hospital there, and uh, really the center of Adventist uh, health research is at Loma Linda. So that aspect has really flourished and grown there. Uh, but at the same time, the health message, as it's called in Adventism, it's not a universal thing that you find everywhere you go in every Adventist community. Uh, you'll find Adventists who say, oh, no, I need to be a vegetarian because this is our tradition. Adventists, um, like myself, who are not <laughs> vegetarian. And, um, and while we recognize this as something that's in the church and is talked about at the same time, uh, different communities will kind of respond differently to it. So other than, honestly, the Sabbath, 
um, and our expectation of Jesus coming prior to any human actions um, that would precipitate it. And probably last of all, the idea of uh, death. Mm. That's probably another big thing right. for Adventists mm-hmm. that's different than most Christians is that um, the earliest Christians held to the idea um, that basically when you died, you, you just, you ceased to exist. Um, mm. And God sort of kept your existence possibility until the resurrection and then gave it back. So mm. in essence, that was the idea of like, oh, death is asleep. You fall asleep and then suddenly you wake up. Right. Um, that idea kind of got changed over time due to Platonism and Greek ideas of the immortal soul that carried forward past the New Testament. And Adventists kind of reclaimed that idea in a sense of going back and saying, well, no, we're not spirits floating up in heaven. So that's a distinct kind of idea that the dead are actually dead still. Mm-hmm. So that defines Adventists very uniquely. But also, in one sense, what defines Adventists, again, very differently than evangelicals, is that they categorically reject the idea of an eternal hell. Mm. So that's another big one. Not only do they reject inerrancy, but they do not accept the concept of the idea that there's a place that burns forever and tortures people. Um, That actually was one of the earliest things that Adventists said was uh, sort of a satanic heresy. Mm. So it's kind of funny that evangelicals have become so associated with Adventism simply because for, you know, I mean, think about Rob Bell, the amount of uh, trouble that he got into with his book, Love Wins, because he questioned hell. Mm. His book didn't even really make any strong claims, too strong claims against it. And he was labeled a heretic. But in my tradition, you know, growing up, uh, the term for describing that doctrine wasn't, is it loving? It was satanic. Mm. So it, Adventists have some distinct differences that put them on both ends of the spectrum, which probably explains why it was relatively easy for me to kind of maneuver between both worlds growing up. Because even though I wasn't consciously thinking about it, my spirituality was being kind of prepared to handle these kinds of strange, categorically opposite viewpoints. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, I'm exposed to all the elements of evangelicalism, but then I'm also being exposed to ideas that would fit, you know, very well in a progressive sort of Christian sense. Interesting. So, so you grew up in that environment, and um, what, uh, what made you decide then to go to get four bachelor's degrees? Um, well, honestly, just interest. Uh, when I came into school, I had spent Three years out of school, since graduating high school, I spent about three years uh, helping uh, my grandmother at the end of her life, um, helping my aunt and my mom taking care of her. And then when I finally went to school, um, she had just passed away. Uh, Like literally, we were having like all that happened about the week before I came into school. Um, But in that emotional volatile period, the reason I came into school, I wanted to study religion um, because I had about just at the time I graduated from high school, read the book uh, by Bart Ehrman, misquoting Jesus, who changed the the story of who changed the Bible and why. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I had learned what biblical scholarship was. Mm -hmm. And unlike other people's reactions to that book, where 
evangelicals were like, oh my goodness, it's destroyed my faith or it will destroy your faith. Uh, for me, it was an absolutely um, revival of my faith. And potentially because of the fact that during my teenage years, later teenage years, I had kind of become very uh, nominal or apathetic towards uh, religion. My spirituality, I would have told you, was fine. I cared deeply about Jesus and God, but the Bible had been so taught to me in a dogmatic kind of doctrinal way that since people had always told me growing up, well, you have the truth. This is the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. Well, I already had the basic instructions. I was so indoctrinated in those basic instructions. I didn't need to worry about, you know, if I missed one or if, you know, what, whatever I had the essentials. So because I thought I had the essentials, I stopped caring really about the material. Mm. And it wasn't until Erm and, and revealed how the Bible was put together, the copyists, all the individuals who were part of the editorial process, and the role that translators have in choosing manuscripts and bringing them together, that just suddenly ignited my, my excitement for what was the Bible, and, and oh my goodness, we actually have a role in it. We, we play a role in interpreting it and understanding it. it's not a one-way conversation. So because of that, I knew I wanted to, to get a bachelor's degree in religion. On the other hand, um, they had just started up uh, recently a program in archaeology. And so that was exciting because I was like, well, um, that doesn't really make sense to only study the text and beliefs when I should also probably have an idea about the material culture and what we find at archaeological sites and how that relates to the biblical evidence. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll get a, a degree in archaeology. And then um, I wanted and always had been interested in storytelling. And I, you know, not only religious, but also in terms of just psychologically how people understand narratives and how they are used to communicate. So I said, all right, um, there had just started a program, literally just started a program in film and television screenwriting. And I said, all right, I'll do that. So I came in freshman year, um, first quarter with declared three majors. And then by probably my junior year or so, by year three or four, um, I learned that they had a independent philosophy uh, major that you could get as well. And that took a lot of, of convincing uh, to make the school uh, accept a fourth degree. Um, they told me it had happened once before, but they were skeptical. But uh, luckily, because some of the same professors who were in the religion programs I had been in were also going to be part of that program, I was able to convince them. And why did I choose philosophy? Because you can kind of get too much in an echo chamber within religion. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I had the skills necessary to kind of think through problems outside of just the religious framework, outside of just the, the typical familiar way of talking about things. I wanted to approach the same issues, but then think of them in a much more classically broad sense than I had. So really, in one sense, most of the degrees I took in undergrad were really to help um, kind of balance me out, give me the ability to approach very important topics from multiple angles, be very interdisciplinary, and not get boxed in to only one sort of way of describing things, mm. but to have multiple uh, ways to kind of tackle the issue and to make sure and keep in check whether or not the way you were thinking about an issue really was the best way to think about the issue. Mm. 
That's fascinating. So um, you go and you get your your four <laughs> master's degrees. I'm sorry, bachelor's degrees. And um, I think the combination to me is 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 fascinating because, you know, you don't just go down the religious and theological. You go into archaeology and philosophy, but then you have this uh, bachelor of fine arts and screenwriting. Like you said, you've always been fascinating with storytelling. So that sets you up to not only do some world traveling and experiencing different things and doing an archaeological dig, then you decide, I'm assuming later in your life, um, to go to Yale, which you're still there now, and um, pursue your degree, your master's degree in Second Temple Judaism. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so actually I went straight from my graduation at La Fiera directly to my orientation at Yale pretty quickly. Mm. So um, because I had taken those three years off with my grandmother, mm. I started school later. Okay. And um, I had actually, after I had read Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, I had come across the Open Yale Lectures online. And uh, one of them, uh, they had both the Introduction to Old Testament and Introduction to New Testament courses at Yale undergrad. Um, that they had videoed and recorded. So I had gone through um, both of those, and particularly I was hugely influenced and enjoyed uh, Dale Martin's Introduction to the New Testament course. And so Yale had a very special place in my heart very early on in my kind of beginnings of, of looking at scholarship. So when I came into uh, La Fiera to do my undergrad, I would constantly make jokes about it would be amazing if, you know, I could ever go to Yale. It would be amazing to, to go to a place, their lectures, their, their scholars. So I had idolized Yale from the very beginning of my academic journey. And um, even some uh, classes I got to take in my undergrad involved textbooks by Yale professors like John Collins. And so when it came time to start sending in master's applications, um, I sent them into like 10 plus places and I had also sent, uh, sent one into Yale. Um, and of course I wanted to imagine the best case scenario that I could have gotten in, but at the same time I was fully prepared that I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I just about, what was it? Probably about a few, <clears throat> about two days before Yale's acceptance came in, I got rejected by Harvard and, so when I got the Harvard rejection and I was like, all right, well, this is the omen. I'm not, that dream is, is going to go away. And that was fine. I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to one of the other schools that I got accepted. They were all, I was really surprised and happy. I thought I was expecting just get in one school, but I was actually getting good acceptances from all of them. So I was, I was like, well, life is good. And then of course fate happened and I did end up getting accepted to Yale Divinity School. And uh, the program that I went into was, um, run by the very professor I was reading in undergrad, John Collins. Mm. So Second Temple Judaism, for those that don't understand what that term refers to, it literally refers to the Second Temple after the first one was destroyed. Mm -hmm. So the first one being the one that the Bible says Solomon built, which Nebuchadnezzar ended up destroying with the Babylonians um, around, you know, when... Um, when Jeremiah was prophesying and saying the Babylonians are going to come. So that whole story. So then Second Temple Judaism is essentially from the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles onward. 
where it's like, okay, well, what happens once they come back from Babylon and they start rebuilding the temple? That's the second temple, and that period lasts all the way until the Romans end up destroying it after Jesus' death in 70 uh, AD. So mm. that's the period of time, and you can even stretch it out a little bit more and say that, you know, you still hear the echoes of the second temple period even after 70 AD. So the period of history is exciting because it's heavily influenced by the uh, Hebrew Bible writings. So you really can't understand what's going on in the Second Temple period if you don't understand what came before. So to really study Second Temple, you need to know the Hebrew Bible. On the other hand, you really need to know the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, because that's written and happening during the Second Temple period. So Paul and all that, that's all before the destruction of the Temple. And even the Gospels, even though they're written from that point onward, they are recounting all the stories from the Second Temple period, and so obviously themselves part of that culture. So you really have to be very interdisciplinary to take on Second Temple. You have to study both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament together, which is really rare. And that might sound odd to people if they don't know this, but typically in academics, you kind of put yourself and pigeonhole yourself into a box. So you either are like, I'm Hebrew Bible or I'm New Testament or, you know, I'm Gospels, I'm Paul. You, you really have to specialize. And so the Second Temple of Judaism is unique because it forces you to not specialize quite in the same way because you really have to get such a breadth of knowledge before you can actually start to bring together all the elements. Um, and also what's unique about Second Temple Judaism is that it's the period in which all the what are called lost books of the Bible or the books mm. that didn't make it into the canon um, or were in some canons and then eventually not in other people's canons uh, were written. And so you get the privilege of not only having to handle, you know, the typical biblical corpus, but you also have to handle the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha. You get to read books like Enoch and Jubilees and you have to become as good an expert in them as you do what would be the canonical literature. So it really forces you to see um, Judaism and Christianity in a much broader aspect. And that's what I wanted and why I went to Yale again to get more perspective, to have a better way of approaching the topics than the boxed in stereotypical approaches that we typically have. And I'm happy to say that, um, as I expected, Yale definitely gave me that. And I've had incredible professors who have definitely help to open up areas of the biblical history and biblical literature that, um, you know, have just really opened up my mind to all kinds of possibilities and, uh, and ways of viewing the story of, um, of the Jewish people and the, the Christian faith. That's awesome, man. Um, I really appreciate uh, your scholarship um, because as a young man of 28 growing up in a, in a, um, in an environment that held to oh, fairly hard and fast to a certain way of seeing the world, um, you 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 were fortunate enough to to be brought up. You said by a mom and in a family that allowed you to experience that world uh, in a more open way. And then you went and rather than running away from. Um, from so much of that and having to unravel so much of that as many of us have, 
uh, you really embraced it and said, I'm going to learn about it. And th- this is a good segue to kind of jump now into your book, Saying No to God. As, I, as you sent me a digital copy and I started going through it, the first thing that caught my eye, Matthew, was some of my favorite people have endorsed your book. Um, you know, Pete Rollins, who I'm a huge fan of, Brian McLaren, um, you know, you quote Pete Enns and Rob Bell and all these people who are considered much more progressive and, dare I say, liberal people on the faith spectrum, um, yet... Uh, and, and in your book, you go into a lot of these different things. I just think it's fascinating um, that they're, that they're so that it's so rich for those of us who may have uh, been through this journey of faith and the winding road. Um, you're jumping headlong into it from as not only a uh, an educated young man, but a scholar, and you're exploring and, and picking these things apart. So, first of all, I, I want to. I want to commend you for that and thank you for it because I think the book's going to be very helpful. But also, um, what was the catalyst for for writing the book? And some of the things that you talk about in the book is you know saying no to God, and you have chapters that are saying no to patriarch or patriarchy, saying no to homophobia, saying no to all these other things that are hot buttons uh, right now. So first talk about what was the catalyst for the book what what was the idea of all the things that you could write about you know high you know uh scholarship archaeology and second temple era you chose to write this book what was the catalyst for that well part of the catalyst is to understand that although scholarship is a huge academic head trip for me and it's very interesting and i am always excited by news of new scholastic importance. Uh, The truth of the matter is I am still confessionally and deeply passionately a Christian and a Mm. believer. And so for me, there is an element to all of this that is uh, far uh, beneath the brain and far more located in the heart. Mm. So while I've definitely exercised my mind to understand how to do critical analysis, I'm also deeply interested in how that connects to a living faith or to theology. Um, and so that makes me kind of unique because many people who go into scholarship tend not, at least certainly in our current time period, they tend not to get involved in those sorts of questions. I always have been very interested in them. And so for me, uh, part of the catalyst of caring about these issues is that the issues that they bring, the, the, the topics that they raise. So for instance, obviously, if you're in a conservative community, scholarship is often looked at as bad. Mm. It's often seen as liberal. It's often viewed as progressively dangerous. This is, you know, look, these archaeologists are, are, they're, they're not faithful. They're, they're poking holes in scripture. They're trying to make you doubt. Look at these, mm. these claims that they're making, right? It's all danger, danger, danger. Uh, and so, for me, being someone who's in that danger, understanding it and creating my own research and publications and really delving into it, I definitely understood, well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous to your own preconceived ideas. It's not necessarily dangerous, period. Right. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just wrong to what you currently think. Right. And that you've kind of deified as your own little idol that you want to protect. But there certainly are important questions that get raised 
and they need to be answered. It's very fine and all for, for you know, a Marcus Borg, who I super love and respect his writing, but I don't like his dismissive tone mm. uh, that he writes and sometimes in his books where, as he describes literalists uh, who read the Bible in conservative communities, he likes to say, oh, well, they're, they're you know, ridiculous. How can mm-hmm. they try to, to think that this would mean this or deal with this? And so there's a lack of appreciation for the real honest uh, problems that you get introduced to. So, so certainly if you're going to hear that archaeologists have good evidence that, you know, Jericho did not actually exist at the time that the book of Joshua says that it did, you really can't just dismiss the concerns of people who would say, well, okay, then how am I supposed to understand this book? And what am I supposed to do with its claims that aren't true? Those are pretty important topics. It's not ridiculous that people would struggle with them when they've been given a paradigm that says, oh, you need to understand it this way. And now it doesn't work. You can't just pull the rug out from under people's feet and then expect them to keep on, you know, standing perfectly still without any, you know, uh, any, uh, any uh, to make that they rebalance themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I think that my book topically touches at the core of what is the biggest issue that today most Christians are facing, which is basically to understand uh, what is, what is it that we're talking about when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about inspiration, uh, who is God? And in what sense are those two topics related? And that's what my book was truly, really trying to get into is this big issue of how do we use the Bible and in what sense does the Bible interact with our relationship with God and how Mm. should it interact with our relationship with God? Mm. That's good. That's great. And what, uh, what has been your, uh, how, first of all, how long did it take it to write, take you to write it? And, um, you've got a lot of great endorsements. Um, what has been your feedback so far from those who have previewed it? Well, I started writing the book in my third, third year of undergrad. Uh, and then I finished it about a year later, the draft, but it took about two more years of, of edits to get Mm. it to the point that it is now. Um, and I, I owe another author, Mark G. Karras, um, who wrote Divine Echoes, uh, a lot credit for his amazing editing. Um, his book's also a really good one for anyone who's interested in deconstructing prayer, uh, Divine Echoes. It's, mm. it's, it's like no other book you've, you've read. Uh, he also has another book he's coming out uh, soon on deconstruction. Great guy. Amazing Christian, amazing person, just really humble. And, and, and helpful and just wonderful guy. I'm very lucky to be friends with him. But uh, he really helped uh, critique a lot of things in the book and helped to, to make the structure of the book flow much more. So that was a whole process of like three years. Mm. Um, but many of the reviews actually came in for the book even before the final structure was fully you know helped, uh, which was great. So I've had various, uh, various reviews come in and the overall reaction to the book has been exceedingly positive. I have had atheists who tell me that they no longer consider themselves atheists because they read it. Uh, I've had atheists tell me that they're still atheists and they love it. Uh, I've had Christians who are liberal tell me that it's been, 
a fascinating uh, rejuvenation of making them love the Bible again when they come to hate it. Mm. And I've had conservatives tell me that uh, they absolutely find it very hard to disagree with the main premises of the book, even if they want to squabble and, and take issue with specific issues that I raised, which is exactly how I made the book. I, I split the book into two parts. One is first part is very theoretical. Let's talk about the Bible, what it suggests about the relationship of God and man. Can man argue with God? Can man say no to God? And then you've got uh, the second part where I say, okay, well, if it's true that people are allowed to reject God, and in fact, God wants that, what are things in which we could uh, approach in our current struggles today, such as homophobia and, and eternal hell and so forth? What are these issues in which uh, we should perhaps say no to, and why might we say no to those things? Mm. So the book is really um, genuinely uh, giving the audience the ability to both see what the basic underlying principle is, which seems to be what everyone can come to agree on because the evidence is so strong for it. Mm. And then whatever has to do with application of that principle is given the freedom of the audience who reads to sort of figure out, do I agree with this approach? Would I do it this way? Right. I'm not really interested in trying to say that, you know, um, this is absolutely the case. It is absolutely the case that I'm saying we need to say no to homophobia. It is not necessarily absolutely the case that the way I go about doing it in the chapter will be absolutely the same way that everybody else does it. Um, I will say it is absolute that eternal hellfire does not work. And I'll lay out the argument. It may not be the case that the individual reading says, I completely agree with everything in this chapter and, and how you approach that issue. But the underlying principle that stands behind each of these chapters and each of these things in the book is absolutely um, seems to be something that everybody comes to so far agree with. That could, of course, just be the small sample size that people have read so far. I'm too realistic and pragmatic to think that everyone's just going to love my book. That's yeah. impossible. Yeah. There are there will definitely be pushback at some point. It just hasn't happened yet, which is kind of my surprise. Uh, it has been a really smooth ride so far, and the overall reaction, both from conservatives and liberals and non-religious individuals, has been that this is a book that, as Peter Rollins um, actually mentions in his review for it, moves the conversation both away from conservatism and progressivism. Kind of takes us to what I wanted to in writing this book, a middle ground where mm. both sides might have the chance to actually have a real conversation with each other. Um, I kind of, you know, similar to this, although my book doesn't touch on abortion, Keith, uh, Keith Giles, who's the author mm -hmm. of, you know, four, yeah, I've had him on my podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a fantastic guy. Good friend. Um, but you know, he wrote an article for his Pathios blog in which he said, abortion's biblical, but it's not Christ-like. Hmm. That's, a better way of having or approaching the conversation in the sense that when it's a short article, but what he's doing is a totally different approach, much more in line with what my book is doing, even though I'm not necessarily endorsing his argument. What I'm simply saying is his approach is to say, okay, maybe the Bible says this, but based on principles in the Bible, I still don't think it's right. Mm. That's an argument in which both sides can come together and start to talk to each other because we're not having a yelling match about 
Well, Leviticus says I can't. Well, this text seems to suggest I can't. Well, you know, and it's just like, well, who has the stronger right. verse? Who it's, can fight? It's, it's the, the Jesus. It's the Jesus hermeneutic, right? It's a Jesus hermeneutic, but it, it's also it's it's not strictly a Jesus hermeneutic. So in my book, uh, one of the things that I I bring out is that in the Hebrew Bible there is this ongoing theme of God wanting people to fight him, God testing people uh, in basically. So for instance, just a quick example of this, because without hearing the example, it's hard to figure out exactly what I'm trying to get at. Uh, Moses in Exodus 32, uh, when the Israelites are down beneath the mountain and Aaron helps them to make this uh, golden calf, that famous story, and Moses is up on Sinai's mountain with Yahweh, what ends up happening is that Yahweh tells Moses, they've made this golden calf. I'm so angry at them. I'm going to kill every last one of them, woman, man, and child, and I'm going to restart everything with you. I regret that I saved them. Forget everything I promised. I'm throwing it all away and starting with you. Now, that is really radical. Basically, God says, I'm going to commit massive genocide on all the people I just saved because they screwed up. And basically what ends up happening is Moses says, you can't do that. It's evil. And not only is it evil, but you break your promises, which means that if you did this, no one should ever believe you ever again. And none of the other nations should ever give you credit. Mm. And then God says, yeah, you're right. Okay. I won't do it. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's this very strange story at, at first blush. Um, and what my book tries to really delve into is how a shallow reading of the story seems to suggest that God changed his mind. Right. And that has been a suggestion people have given before in various works. But the funny thing is, is that it's not the only story like it. And when you look at the other stories, including the Moses story, you start to notice that, in fact, um, the way this kind of motif works is God suddenly, abruptly suggests something that is totally opposite of how God describes himself and how God has previously acted. The human appeals to God in defense of how God used to be against how God currently, and then God reaffirms who he has been and then doesn't do the crazy thing that was seemingly against. Mm. So another way of putting this is how Martin Luther described it. God suddenly grabs the devil's mask and wears it. Mm-hmm. So it now suddenly, instead of looking like Jesus, he's looking like Satan. Mm-hmm. But you still know it's God. Mm-hmm. And now the question is, how do you react to that? Mm. And uh, for Luther and Calvin, they described this as the great test of faith. Mm. Do you know God well enough to reject the mask and demand that God go back to who he really is? In other words, as Peter Rollins uh, puts it in a parable, if you got to heaven and Satan was sitting at the throne and he said, well, I sent Jesus to hell and I'm God now, but it's okay because I have his authority. I'm going to give you all the blessings that he promised, right? Are you going to sit there and say, oh, okay, what really matters is the authority. So since you've got it now, oh, well, that you're God. That's, that's what, that's the issue. Or is the issue character? So even though Satan has the authority of God, you'd still reject him because it's Satan. It's evil. Your allegiance is to good, not evil. Not just because evil has the authority, you'll reject it regardless. So what Rollins is really getting to in that parable he tells is this idea of 
what is your ultimate concern? What are you ultimately allegiant to? Mm. Is it God's character or God's authority? Mm. Uh, if it's God's authority, Satan can get that authority and you'd still worship him. Mm. If it's God's character, you will uh, go wherever God is because you know that that's going to transform everything. Mm. So in these stories in the Hebrew Bible, you see this kind of, uh, this kind of struggle between you know God teaching Moses that I am ever gracious, ever forgiving and merciful, and then all of a sudden he looks like the devil. I'm ready to kill everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is once God doesn't do it, he gives a big speech about how he's always forgiving and always, uh, always merciful. And the key is that Moses, Abraham, Jacob, all these characters who are involved in these kind of similar stories, they always root their rejection of God's devilish mask by saying, this is not you. This mm. is not who you are. I reject this. So it's always an issue that's rooted in the issue of God's character with huge ramifications for the world and people. Now, Jesus continues the same trend. That's what's really fascinating. He, he continues this motif. Um, and one, a good example of this is the story of the Syrophoenician woman where especially in Matthew's gospel, you have this woman whose daughter is ill and she comes to Jesus saying, please, please help. And Jesus says, no, why should I help? Uh, you know, I can't, why should I give, you know, the bread to the dogs when there are children who need it? The children being Israel, the dogs being Gentiles. Um, and the woman rebuts Jesus and says, well, your logic's deficient because even the dogs end up getting some crumbs from the table that the children are eating from. So you can't say it's a zero-sum game, Jesus. You're wrong. Uh, some of those crumbs do end up getting to the dogs. And then Jesus is said to have said that, you know, because you said this, because you rebutted me, because you rejected the logic I gave you, you're going to be healed. And in Matthew's gospel, it's explicitly said that it's uh, your faith, that this rejection of this image of God not caring about the dogs is an act of faith. Um, and what's fascinating about this is it opens up context for what the Gospel of John says when it says that uh, when Jesus tells his disciples, you are going to do greater things than me. Mm. And that's one of those texts that people just really don't, you know, kind of think about enough. What does it mean you'll be greater than Jesus? I mean, not ontologically, but in terms of how you're living out, right? You, Jesus is is looked at in essence as being the paradigm of what we see as the image of God. And yet at the same time, we're being told by Jesus that humans who follow Jesus are going to actually surpass what he could be in this time and place, in this historical moment. Um, And so that tells us two things. It tells us one, that Jesus was confined in many ways in what or at least certainly the early Christians believed he was confined in what he could give as an example of divinity in that first century uh, Jewish uh, context, but also that Christians are called to continue uh, that image and continue to evolve it and grow it well beyond what Jesus had. But how does that happen? Well, again, the Gospel of John tells us later, it says, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Comforter, and this Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. What does that mean? You don't have the truth right now. It's going to continue. I mean, you might have some, but it's going to give you all truth. How long? Continually. So what that means is, is that quite contrary to the sort of 
uh, simplistic urge of saying, oh, a Jesus hermeneutic, uh, which it's not that it's wrong, but it can be in the sense that somebody can say, well, I reject divine command theory. I reject the idea that whatever God says is arbitrarily right in the Old Testament. But as soon as I come to the Gospels, now I kind of marry myself to whatever Jesus says. Mm-hmm. So now Jesus's red-lettered words are the new commandments, and I have to strictly follow them. So if Jesus said no to divorce, then I absolutely have to be no to divorce as well. It's not that simple, mm-hmm. because as my book explores, Jesus is doing the same thing that Yahweh is depicted as doing, which is encouraging his followers to wrestle with the things that he says Mm. and to always put into context of when it was said and whether or not it's fitting within the situation. And we actually know that this is how the early Christians were working because in Paul's writings, we see, um, we see Paul describing how he knew that Jesus had forbidden divorce. And yet he says, not I, you know, not the Lord, but I say, that in these new Gentile context where one person is Christian and the other person's pagan, if the one who's pagan wants to divorce you because your faith is problematic to them, you know what? Forget what Jesus said. In this context, you really should divorce them because uh, it goes to the greater purpose of what Jesus thought, which is greater peace. Now, mm. this is very interesting because it shows that how Paul is kind of interpreting the as the earliest kind of Christian theologian we have, he's understanding Jesus as having said literal things. He understands the context in which those literal things were said to these Jewish people at this Jewish time. And yet now in a new context and in new decades since, he sees, ah, well, that might not be the best way of approaching the issue. Let me think through what was the undergirding principle that led Jesus to give that direction. And do so you think then he takes that principle and he applies it in a new way? Interesting. Do you think, um, you know, I've come to my own personal conclusion of how I interpret, and I was talking about someone this the other day, about this the other day, that many times, like you're saying, could it be that um, this wrestling and God inviting, as it appears to in Scripture, God inviting people to to wrestle and then discover his true nature on the other side, i.e. the person winning, does this have more to say about us as human beings than it really is about God? Um, could it be that, for instance, I was talking this specific story of, of Abraham being led to sacrifice his son and then an angel coming and stopping him and saying, no, I'm going to provide something else, the, the ram. Um, it, could that be um, you know, man's way of wrestling through this idea of different subjects, i.e., in this, in this situation, human sacrifice, which was very prevalent in that society for thousands of years, um, even to this day in some cultures, there's still... Um, blood sacrifices and and but but this idea of human sacrifice was maybe a way a way of recording and passing down in lore uh of of god um you know man thinking that god desires a human fact sacrifice and one of the things that brad jerzak has said in one of his books that all of the old testament served a major purpose and one of that major purposes was 
God convincing man that he does not is not interested in human sacrifice. He does not need human sacrifice. Um, and so maybe you know God t- quote telling Abraham to sacrifice his son and then an angel coming and stopping him was really more about man figuring out the true nature of God. And is that kind of where you're going with this wrestling idea? It's really more about us. Um, coming and unraveling our own misconceptions and, and knowledges of God uh, and finding out his true nature rather than God performing some supernatural um, lesson on us. What, what are, what's your thoughts on that? I have no problem personally understanding that God did, in fact, act in these ways, potentially with human beings. At the same time, it is probably then a good thing to think that in fact this same process happens at the human level and has continued well on into the present. Mm. So I don't necessarily have to, it's like, I don't think personally that uh, Jonah was actually swallowed by a big fish. I think Jonah's story is a parable, but that does not mean that I have to say it's impossible that such a thing could happen. Right. It's not an either or thing. I'm not, I don't have to necessarily declare that that's an impossibility um, in order to recognize that the odds are kind of low on that end. And even the intention of the author does not appear to be to tell a literal story. So it's really about a careful reading. And yes, Mm. in my book, I'm definitely going in the direction of saying there is a human element here. Um, And I mean, a great, I think a more precise way of explaining it perhaps or getting to this is comparing the book of Joshua to the book of Esther. Mm. So it, Esther's main criticism all the time is that it doesn't use the name of God. God is kind of a missing actor in this book. Um, and of course, the main criticism of Joshua is God is everywhere, and we wish he was nowhere in this book, um, at least nowhere in the violence within this right. book that seems right. to overtake it. And the problem is that um, there is a really potentially good reason I suggest that this is the case. And that is that when you read Esther, every movie version of Esther cuts off three paragraphs before it ends. And the reason they do is because the last part of Esther is the worst, one of the worst parts of all scripture, and right up there with Joshua and the Canaanites. And that is that after Esther goes ahead and gets um, the Jewish people the ability to defend themselves from the attack, uh, which is where the movie usually ends with, yay, we defended ourselves. Um, then Esther comes with a new genocidal idea. How about you give us our day to go seek out anybody we want to kill, and we'll do the exact same thing that those people would want, except we have freedom to kill anyone we want. And I think like the, the death toll is like over 75,000 people, uh, men, women, children. It, it's crazy. Genocidal, terrible, horrible. And um, it's something that, that's the, that's the end of Esther. Yay, we killed so many people. Um, What's interesting is God's not there. He's not present. He's not said to be the reason Esther got this idea or that God blessed them. He's, you know he's there because it's Jewish. Mm. You know that God's moving in history. You know God is present. But the author does not want to put God in it. He doesn't want to um, add God into the story. And yet, because that was seen as so problematic, we know that when it got translated from Hebrew into Greek uh, in the Septuagint, 
editors actually did start adding God name in everywhere so that the Greek version of Esther has God in every scene. God mm. is the one who's moving everything responsible for everything. And there's prayers and it's very religious. And so here's the issue. All right. So an original book that tried to almost historically, but I won't say it's historical because I don't know that the book of Esther was trying to tell history, but it definitely theologically was not comfortable with putting God into everything that occurred and happened. So in a certain sense, he wanted a level of objectivity for the, for the reader to kind of question where is God in the story. But then later people changed it and said, no, 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 we definitely can see that God was moving all these things, so let me put him in there. Well, that's interesting, because then what might that tell us reverse about Joshua? That here in Joshua, we have God in every scene, moving everything. But could it be that the reality of the traditions behind Joshua is that God was not explicitly said to order the attack or to do these things, but rather human beings, like with the Hebrew version of Esther turning to Greek, people are like, no, 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 we've got to interpret this. God must have been in here. God must have, like, you know God's there, but let's spell it out mm. and what our current understanding is about this. I think there is definitely an argument to be made that there are human parties doing these things. And it's not to say God's not in these stories. It's not to say God can't be in these stories. It's to say that the exact precision at which a biblical author wants to say God is at this point in the story may reflect more to do with their perspective and their time and place than where God actually was in that story. Um, right. And to that point, you raise the issue of Abraham and Isaac, mm -hmm. which is actually one of the chapters in my book. Um, I, I would agree with your point that you're saying, except for the fact that I actually think that we often misread that story. Mm. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that you're right, um, and Brad Jerzak is right. Uh, child sacrifice was very prevalent in many religious cultures, it certainly was prevalent enough that somebody would not blink an eye and say, oh, wow, I've never heard of that, right? For us today, it's shocking. Back then, you might have disagreed with it, but it wasn't necessarily something that shocked you. You knew it happened. You mm -hmm. knew people were prone to think these things. We know that at the time of Jeremiah, you know, there were people who, who could consider sacrificing their children in the Jewish context right. or for Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where you recognize this was, this was more prevalent than people would think. So the problem where we misread Abraham is we think that he should be shocked when God says, I'm, I want you to kill Isaac. But the reality is it makes sense that he's not shocked because the reality is, is that this was not a shocking idea. It's shocking to us, but it would not be shocking to the readers and it would not be shocking to Abraham. In fact, prior to the Abraham story, God has not given Abraham any laws. He hasn't told Abraham necessarily what I expect here or there, right? Abraham's story is more like a long journey of discovery. He finds out in episodes what it is God wants, and he kind of learns as he goes, whereas Moses is kind of depicted as getting it all in one go, big laws, mm -hmm. whole event. So there's no reason for necessarily Abraham to find problems with the idea that he needs to kill Isaac. So then the real interest in the story is that Abraham seems to doubt what God said. So when Abraham is going up the mountain or about to go up the mountain, he tells the servants, uh, I and the boy are going to go up and we're both going to come back down. Mm -hmm. And people miss that line when he says we're coming back because some people will try to say, oh, he's lying. But there's no reason to lie. They're slaves. They're, they're not going to they're not going to revolt against their master. But also there's no reason for them to revolt. 
this idea was prevalent. There's no, it's not like they're going to go, oh my goodness, you're a madman. No, they're going to be like, oh, so your God is kind of like those gods. Oh, okay. That's all right. You know, it would have been shocking in the sense of like if they had emotions towards the boy, but you understood that a God's call on you was greater than, you know, what your emotions are. So again, it doesn't make sense that Abraham's lying. If Abraham's not lying, then Abraham is actually doubting that the exact statement that God asked him to do is really the right one. Then when he's going up the mountain uh, with Isaac and Isaac says, well, where's the, the, the ram, the lamb that's going to be offered? Uh, Abraham says, well, God will provide one. Well, again, this is problematic because if God's providing it, then Abraham's not. And if Abraham's not providing it, then it can't be Isaac. So if you're Isaac there, right, there's only two solutions. Either Abraham's lying to me or Abraham doesn't believe I'm the one that's going to be sacrificed. So right here at the beginning, you have to ask again, well, would Abraham have a reason to lie to his son? Well, if he didn't have a reason to lie to the servant, and again, if he wanted to, he could say something else, but rather his statement to Isaac is God's going to provide it, which actually does end up happening. So you have to kind of err on the side of, does it make more sense that he's trying to lie to his kid or does it make more sense that there's a deeper conviction in Abraham that what's happening here is wrong? Now here comes the, the real kicker that I argue in the story. And that is that when Abraham is about to kill Isaac, or supposedly, it doesn't even say that. It, to be honest, in the text it says he grabs the knife. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say he does anything else. He just goes to grab the knife. We're not even told he actually grabs it. So every painting you ever see where he's got it like hanging up in the air, the story never tells us that he got that far. As far as we know, he reached for it. And before he even grabbed it, the angel speaks. And what does the angel say? The angel says that because you listen to the voice, I know your character. I know who you are. And this is where we, I think, get it wrong. And that is that there were two voices that spoke. One is the voice when God says, go kill him. This is my eternal order. Then there's the other voice, which is the angel that cries out, don't kill him. Abraham, if he was committed to the voice at the beginning, would need to kill Isaac to be committed to him. But by hearing a voice that says the opposite and choosing that voice to listen to Mm. We're now actually in an interesting place where we can say, is the angel praising Abraham because he did the earlier voice of go kill him? Or is in fact the great point of the story that Abraham knew that somehow through his relationship with God, knew that it was inconsistent to have uh, the idea of child sacrifice and belief in Yahweh. And when he heard a voice from heaven say, don't do it it was enough for him to recognize I'm not doing it. Mm. And so that this is the great test of Abraham's faith, that he knew God well enough to not do it. Now, you might think, wow, you're just really trying to creatively reinvent the story. The funny thing is, I'm not. Jesus did. Mm. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually comments on Abraham's story with Isaac. And it's he, he criticizes the Jewish leaders and says, you are of your father, the devil. You seek to kill. What you should be like is your father, Abraham, who did not seek to kill. Mm. 
And this is a fascinating passage that gets very little, uh, you know, currency in our conversations. Jesus is alluding to the story of the binding of Isaac as an episode of Abraham seeking not to kill. Mm. This is not Jesus saying, I am Isaac, or this is a story about why, you know, I was going to come here for this purpose. And I mean, John would be the one to try and go that angle. He's the theological one. Rather, no, Jesus alludes to the story and says, that story was about a human who desired not to kill. Mm. And that's why he was truly faithful. He didn't kill. Whereas the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who seek Jesus' death are like the devil. They're seeking a death from, uh, from, and, and as a result, Jesus says, you're not really children of Abraham because if you were, you would do what he did. And that is he, you would not kill. So even though it sounds like a creative reinterpretation of the story, if you're a Christian and you value John, you're going to have to take seriously that Jesus himself is not interpreting the story in the traditional way that we do. So I think that uh, Christians and Jewish uh, readers really need to kind of look at the story and, and think to themselves, is this really a tale about blind obedience and mm. faith being blind obedience? Or is this a story about truly knowing the heart of the person you have faith in or what faith is, trust, that you really trust this person well enough to know that their words are betraying who their character really is. Wow. And that is, in a nutshell, what my book is really yes. focused on, is yeah. can we get to know character of God so that we don't constantly get locked up in these meaningless conversations about, well, did he say this? Did he not say this? Is it verbal inspiration? Is it not verbal inspiration? Well, in the end, it really doesn't matter because in the end, Abraham may hear something verbally exactly what God says, but the real key to his success is whether he knows what God's heart is, which may not fit with the words. But ultimately, the test is whether he knows the heart, not the words. The mm. problem with our way of reading the Bible is that we've been so bent out of shape looking at the words, yes. we've really lost sight of the heart of God. Mm. That is so good, and it's a good, um, I think it's a good ending to this podcast. I want to thank you for, for sharing this, and we could go on and on for hours, but... Um, how can people get a hold of you? Do they, uh, it's MatthewJCorman.com, uh, so that's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-K-O-R-P-M-A-N.com. Any, any other places that people can reach out to you on social, maybe? Yes, absolutely. If people want to reach out, they can, of course, um, hit me up on Twitter. They can find me at M-Cortman, uh, M, letter M-K-O-R-P as in Paul, M-A-N. Um, and you know, if you happen to be on Facebook, I have a Facebook page there too, Matthew J. Cortman. Um, but I, I hope people will uh, take a look at the book. You, you mentioned earlier that you, that the book was either out or, or was the student mm-hmm. come out. The book came out, uh, last December. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. It is, it is a, no, no, it's fine. So the book is available, um, from every but, major So it just came out. I'm, mm-hmm. It's very, yeah, very recent, just came out. I'm having a book signing event at uh, Yale University's bookstore on the 27th. Uh, So if you go to my website, you can find more details about that. If you're in the area, uh, it'll be a fun event. But um, otherwise, uh, the book's available on ebook, and we're currently working on getting together an audio book for the the work as well. So um, I, I... 
I can also add in that I am working on uh, about two other books, including a sequel. Uh, so, uh, if people like the work and they enjoy the ideas, they can expect to see more in the coming future. Uh, but hopefully people will take a look at it and whether or not people ultimately agree with, uh, different ideas that I give in the book is not my full concern. What I really hope that comes out of this book is that instead of having argumentative matches from the liberals and conservatives on either side, we can actually start to find some sort of common ground in the character of God to start having conversations that would lead us closer to God's character, closer to Jesus, rather than to seemingly get further and further away from both by these meaningless uh, shouting matches, which don't really end up taking us to a better place. Right. And that's really the goal and the objective of why I wrote the book and what I hope the book will do for anyone who's reading it. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time, and I want to thank you— um, for going here and writing the book, Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the, the Bible Faithfully, because, just like you said, you're providing a third way, you're providing an alternative, and you're providing common ground, which is beautiful. Um, and I hope that you as a young man will continue and have a long, fruitful life in doing this and helping to provide another way, um, a loving way, a kind way, uh, of bringing people together to discuss these things when so many of us, um, you know, uh, have a tendency to swing from one side to another. I think you're providing uh, a new generation that's saying maybe there's another way, maybe there's a hopeful way, maybe there's a kind way, an inclusive way, and ultimately um, a very faith-rich way of respecting uh, Scripture, of respecting tradition, but also embracing maybe a new and evolved way of looking to see what does it look like, what does faith look like in our current culture uh, in 2020 and moving forward. So, so thank you for that, and thank you for your continued scholarship and study and, and really pressing into this. And thank you so much for bringing me on to the program and having uh, a, a wonderful conversation and uh, giving me the chance to share with your audience uh, a little bit about what I've been doing and what's led me to this point. I've really enjoyed it and deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much, Matthew, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.